Let's Talk Native is produced at the Eltian Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. And welcome to Let's Talk Native. I'm John Kane and I'm your host. And I gotta ask the question How did the image and perception of Native people go from a pack of whining cur who licked this hand that smites them to high school mascots for white folks who now claim our images represent pride and dignity and bravery and honor? Do white people really admire us? Or do they only admire this image that they've created of us. And it brings me to another question, which is based on a famous quote, the quote that from Philip Sheridan, a guy born in Albany, New York, who go on, went on to be one of the highest ranking Irish Americans in U.S. history. Um, his quote is, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Now, we understand what that means. When, he, when Philip Sheridan is saying that, what he's saying is, unless an Indian is dead, he's no good. Now, but there is another way to interpret it. However, <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt, he viewed things much the same way that Philip Sheridan did. His quote is, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. So this is a view that is held by prominent Americans, that the only good Indians are dead Indians. The only time a good Indian is, or an Indian is good is when he's dead. But there is another way of, of interpreting that, that concept, and that is that the only good Indians are the ones who are now dead, the ones who lived in the past. And we can kind of despise the, the current uh, existence of Native people. And I think that is kind of where much of this, this lies. And, and, I, and, I, and I guess to, to reaffirm that notion, I go back to, a, um, to an editorial that I referred to oftentimes as, uh, or that is referred to as the bomb genocide editorials. There's two of them, actually. Um, and that being L. Frank Baum, who was the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. But he was also the editor of a, of a newspaper called The Saturday Pioneer, which was uh, printed out of Aberdeen, Dakota Territory. And, and, and Baum had a strange, um, he kind of had a strange view of, uh, of Native people. He, um, he, <clears throat> praised folks like Sitting Bull and and when Sitting Bull was murdered lamented about Sitting Bull's about his death and he 
talked about him in in terms like being kingly and uh, you know and, and having the white man's spirit and all that other stuff. But he would also go on to say that the proud spirit of the original owners of these vast prairies inherited through centuries of fierce and bloody wars for their possessions lingered last in the bosom of Sitting Bull. With his fall, the nobility of the redskin is extinguished and what few are left are a pack of whining curs who lick the hand that smites them. And he goes on to say that, that we should be ex exterminated. And, and then he gives the case, makes the case for, for why extermination. Their, their glory has fled. Their spirit is broken. Their manhood he faced. Better that they die than live the miserable wretches that they are. And this is, and this is really kind of important. He says, history would forget these latter despicable beings and speak in later ages of the glory of the, these grand kings of the forest and plain. He even re references... Um, the, the fact that we were heroized by, by folks like James Fenimore Cooper. He said, we cannot honestly regret their extermination, but he actually referred to exterminating us as, as doing justice to our manly characteristics. So this is the view that, that L. Frank Baum had of, uh, of, uh, of native people that, as we existed contemporarily, and this is written in 1890, by the way. So he is already viewing native people of the past as the grand kings of the forest and the plain. So he's already heroizing the dead Indians, but suggesting that the best way to maintain this ideal of who native people are is to kill the rest of us. So from L. Frank Baum's perspective, the only good Indians are dead Indians. To him meant the good ones are the ones who, are, who, are, who have already lived and now died. And that the current ones are nothing but a pack of whining curs who lick the hand that smites them. And that we were better off dead so we didn't tarnish that, that image. So when I asked the question, how did we become this, um, these people now that white folks want to glom onto for these for these native mascots i, I mean it's a it's a compli complicated question because the very folks who whose ancestors and and wh whose history were a part of the genocide against our native people are now claiming that we were these honorable creatures that we you know we were that our images and our names and and as they use us for mascots that it, that it represents pride and integrity and honor then why would you kill people that, that had all these characteristics? See, there's an erasure that takes place of history. And just like Al Frank Baum suggested, you can forget the, uh, the, um, the people that you despise today and just hang on to these images of the future or, or of the past by rewriting history. And we, we talk about this kind of revisionist history. So, so where does this come from? Where does some of this start? Well, Baum represents or um, uh, mentions James Fenimore Cooper, and he wrote a series of novels. And and Frank and and, and frankly, Cooper would um, uh, he would be accredited with, with creating a unique form of American literature. We call it lies, but uh, but Americans call this this idea of ro romanticizing the frontier, and by creating these these 
romantic depictions of the frontier and native people. And, and of, of course, what they what often ha times happen, especially with, with Cooper's genre um, of, of American literature, you could create the bad Indians and the good Indians in the same story. And so you could romanticize the, you know, the noble character of the good ones. And then, but at the same time, have the, and, and, he, and he did this with all, with all the books. I mean, when the last of the Mohicans, he's got Magua, the Huron, who is the bad one. And then he's got his Mohican friends, uh, you know, that are, are there with Hawkeye, um, who are the, the noble ones. And so you, you, can, you can get this sense of, of, of endearment towards one group of native people, even as you condemn the others. So when you want to talk about the characteristics of, a, of, a, of native, native people, you can glom on to the, to the ones that history is recounting as these, these noble figures. When the reality is, even the noble figures, uh, in, even in, uh, that are represented loosely, um, loosely represented in James Fenimore Cooper's books, they were also run off of their lands. So even the noble, even the, the, the proud and dignified and honorable Native people still had their lands lost. They still were massacred. They still were, uh, had, you know, had their scalps taken and, and, their, and their women and children taken and, and killed or, or, or run off lands. So I still get left with this, with this, almost this tormenting question. Because as, as I get involved, more and more involved with, with the mascot issue, we get confronted by, by white people who constantly want to say, oh, no, they're not we're not mocking you. We're not, we're not trying to denigrate you by using your mascots because we think your images, as we claim them, represent honor and dignity and, uh, and bravery and all, this, all these great things. Well, look, I understand that if, if, a, if people are going to use Native people for mascots, they aren't going to use us in a negative way. But, but even by trying to cast us as these, no, as these noble savages, you are erasing history. And, and I, what's offensive about this you know, to, to, to Native people is this lifting up of these images is not the lifting up of, of us as people. It is, it's the recreation, it's a reinvention that you have of, of a Native image, of a Native person from a bygone era that was never treated with such deference. We were never treated as honorable beings. Again, we were, we were raped, we were enslaved, we were, uh, we were massacred. We were run off our lands. Our, our children were stolen and put into residential schools. So when I hear some white lady, you know, on the news, on a news interview, suggesting that, that they only honor us by, by mocking us, it's, it's really absurd. And look, do I think Native people were honorable and, and courageous and, and proud and dignified? Absolutely. But it's one thing for me to be proud of my ancestry. But when I hear somebody who's appropriating our culture and then saying, oh, no, we get to do that because we're not being offensive, because we're honoring you. Well, you can't be honoring us if you're not telling the truth of history. So, so I get back to this, to this whole notion about how history is rewritten. And, and look, so where does this idea of endearing uh, you know, Native people or, or trying to 
um, recast us as you know these these wonderful people. Well, you know, I go back to the to the very the very beginning of you know after the Revolutionary War. You got you got folks like Thomas Jefferson, who was considered one of the enlightened presidents, and Thomas Jefferson. By almost by every other account, except for the way he's taught in school, was a terrible human being. I mean, this is a, was a slaveholder. He he created he made sex slaves out of his slaves. I mean, this, this is a this is a person who had children with with his enslaved uh, with one of his enslaved people, and those children were were enslaved as well. They would you know he would write them off and, and would give them their freedom at some point. But this is the kind of person he was. And from a Native standpoint, you know, I, I, the first document that people are familiar with with Thomas Jefferson is the Declaration of Independence. And in the Declaration of Independence, he refers to Native people as merciless Indian savages. Not a compliment but by any stretch of the imagination. He was not trying to endear himself to some sort of you know, honorable people. In fact, he goes on in, in that same quote to talk about, you know, how devious and how treacherous we were that in, in the way that we conducted, uh, you know, warfare. But he also knew that we were a large population that he, as, as a president, would have to figure out how to deal with. So he had a, he had a strategy and he actually wrote to the, uh, a guy who would later become president, if only for a month, William Henry Harrison, who was the governor of Indiana Territory. And I've, I've talked about this letter before, too. But what he did was he wrote this, um, uh, this letter to, to Harrison. And what he wanted to say is, look, look you're going to get official correspondence. I mean, you will receive uh, herewith an answer to your letters um, as the president of the convention and from the secretary at war, you will receive from time to time information and instructions as to our Indian affairs. These communications being for public records are restrained. He says, but this letter being unofficial and private, I may with safety give you more extensive views of our policy respecting the Indians and that you may better comprehend the parts dealt out to you in detail through official channels and observing the systems of which they may make a part conduct yourself in unison with it in these cases you are obliged to act. So what he's basically saying is you're going to get official correspondence. He goes, but I'm also going to give this to you because when you don't get specific instructions, I want you to know what is really intended here. And so what he was saying is our system is to live in perpetual peace with the Indians, to cultivate an affectionate attachment from them, not to them or with them. And, and, and this is an important distinction. He says, we need to cultivate an, an affectionate attachment from them by everything just and liberal with which we can do for them within the bounds of reason. So he goes on to say that they've already limited the amount of lands that native people could hunt, and it was unsustainable. And so... What he was saying is that now that we've reduced them and, and have introduced them to things like farming, you know, specific agriculture, gardening, I should say, not necessarily wholesale farming, and, and spinning and weaving and that kind of stuff, we can convince them that their land is no longer necessary. All this land that, that, that they have, that they can, they can depart from it. And so what he, what he promoted was 
a to, this is what he says in the letter to promote this disposition to exchange lands which they have to spare and we want for necessaries which we have to spare and they want we shall push our trading houses and be glad to see the good influential individual among them run in debt because we observe that when these debts get beyond what the individual can pay they become willing to lop them off by session of land at our trading houses too we mean to sell so low as to merely repay the cost and charges so as to neither lessen or enlarge our capital this is what private traders cannot do they will consequently retire from the competition and we shall thus get clear of these pests now he's talking about us he's saying run us into debt sell at the bare minimum from the, from our trading houses encourage them to buy as much stuff as possible and give them a good value for it i mean you know, don't don't overcharge them don't try to make any money here because the the real gain here is is their land so he says this is how we will clear <laughs> clear us of, of this pest without giving offense or umbrage to the Indians. In this way, our settlements will gradually circumscribe uh, and approach the Indians, and they will in time either incorporate with us as citizens of the U.S. or be removed beyond the Mississippi. The former is certainly a termination of their history, but in the whole course of this, it is essential to cultivate their love. So the reason I bring this up, and, and the reason it's, it's relevant to these conversations, is because... What Thomas Jefferson, what Thomas Jefferson was saying, let's convince everybody to treat native people with kindness, even as we're screwing them. I mean, he, he goes on to, to refer to this as the means to, um, uh, in the furtherance of his final consolidation. This sounds like final solution from, from Hitler, but, but he goes on to say that, look, we're going to convince them that we love them, but you know, what? if they, if they act up, we'll crush them. We'll destroy them. And if they, if they, if they dare lift the hatchet, he says, we will, we'll, we'll take all of their land and we'll destroy them. In this one letter, Thomas Jefferson, for all intents and purposes, captures the, uh, you know, the extermination policy, the assimilation policy, the termination policy, and the removal policy. He basically says, look, if we can circumscribe their lands, they'll either become part of who we are, they'll become U.S. citizens, or we're going to move them. We'll, we'll get them out of here. We'll, and if they, be, and they become U.S. citizens, their history is done. That's what he's saying. We will terminate who they are. But if they want to move out of, our, out of sight, out of mind, west of the Mississippi, well, they can, they can have their way there. So this is, an eight, this is like <laughs> at the turn of the 19th century. This is 1803 that he writes this letter. So... So as, as we confront some of this, this, the, this new idea that, that Native people are these heroes of the past, well, we were never treated that way. We were, I mean, we were either you know, deceived by guys like Thomas Jefferson or we were murdered or, or you know, by, by folks like uh, you know, Sheridan or uh, you know, Shivington at, you know, at, the, at the orders of folks like Abraham Lincoln. And ironically, the um, the Wounded Knee Massacre, that would happen with um, the uh, um, with uh, uh, Benjamin Harrison, who would be the great grandfather to William Henry Harrison. 
I mean, that's how long and how many generations of white people deceiving Native people this would go on. So when I asked the question, how did we get transformed to a, a people that, that Americans could warrant genocide against, to now these figures that, that, that white people can, can grab onto as mascot fodder and claim that we are, we, are, we are proud and we are honorable and we're dignified and we're brave, we're courageous, you know, all of these things. It's because they aren't really attributing those characteristics to us. And, and in fact, even as they're doing this with mascots, they're not talking about Native people as we exist. In much the same way that, that L. Frank Baum said, look, let's, 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 let's honor their past, but let's get rid of them as they exist today. Let's, 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 I mean, what he was calling for was extermination. What the contemporary white person who was who, who's pitching this, this honor, uh, you know, the, all this honor BS, what they're saying is let's ignore who they are. In fact, when they tell us to remove mascots, we're going to ignore that too, and we're going to, and we're going to, we're going to call them out. We're going to insult them. We will berate them, and we were, and we will say that they'll even claim that we aren't the people, because we really aren't. They're going to claim that we aren't the warriors or the redskins or the Indians that they're claiming to be. That we we have become something less than that. We are the despicable beings that Alfred Baum wrote of. We aren't those grand kings of the forest and plains of the past that Fenimore Cooper, James Fenimore Cooper and, uh, and L. Frank Baum wrote of. You see, this whole idea of romanticizing Native people, it goes back to the origins of, of you know, even, even before you know, there was a United States. This was already building up with the way that we were being talked about in European circles, in, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the United States, in, in America. We're already being dissected as both a worthy foe, but, but also somebody whose women and children could be, could be scalped and, and murdered. And, and not just for a brief period of time. We're talking about scalping that took, took place at the hands of, of, of the King of England. All the way through, uh, through, the, through the late 19th century. In California, they were still promoting. In fact, people, gold speculators oftentimes find, found there was more money to be made scalping Indians than panning for gold. So this is the history. This is the true history. So when I hear anybody stand up to a microphone or a news reporter or, or write a column in a paper trying to defend using a native mascot, and saying, well, no, we don't, we're not insulting anybody. You don't understand. The insult isn't the image that, you've, that you're using as a mascot. The insult isn't the word or the nickname, whether it's Indians, Warriors, Redskins. I mean, some of them are kind of insulting. But that's not really what the insult is. The insult is, is the erasure of history. So it is really time to be honest. And if you want to reconcile... <laughs> this, the harm of the past, you can't ignore it. And you can't pretend that you somehow honor us with the, not only the use of these mascots, but even with these characteristics that you claim that you now see that somehow throughout hundreds of years of genocide, that now you can reflect and say, oh yeah, yeah, Native people, they were really honorable. 
then why'd you kill us? Why did you enslave our people? Why were women and children massacred, not in a battlefield, but on the prairies, in our villages? I mean, this, this is really where asymmetric warfare you know, got its, you know, got its worth. And it was the way Europeans slaughtered native people and Americans slaughtered native people. You cannot talk about us being honorable without owning, owning the shame and the atrocities that you committed, that your people committed. And, and it continues to be an atrocity. As far as I'm concerned, Erasing history is still a part of genocide, and that's what you're doing today. That's what many, and I'm not just talking about you know you know alumni from from some school who had a native mascot. We see it playing out. Look, in, and again, I go back to to James Fenimore Cooper. All of his books, they have a, a they do have a, a native person who is in good standing in the in uh, in his books, but the hero is a white guy who has managed to get some knowledge from the native people. So he represents the native person. So whether it's Hawkeye or, or whether it's, you know, movies like Avatar where the, where the white guy saves the blue people. Dances with Wolves, Kevin Costner. It's, it's the white guy who's the star of the film. So you, we, we always have this, I, this notion that even as Native people, when we are represented, I mean, some of the later John Wayne films had Chief Dan George playing a, a noble character in his film. Of course, there were, always the, there were always the other ones that you could warrant killing dozens at a time. But see, this is, this is the way truth is manipulated by literature, by film, by, by TV newscasts. You cannot maintain the argument that you are honoring us even as your cops are beating our people for, for trying to stop a pipeline from going through. Or your governor is extorting billions of dollars out of native gaming. Or your president or former president is, is just a racist ass spewing all of this, this hate. Look, the only thing I'll say about um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, he shared some of the same views that guys like Donald Trump had about how important it was to devastate native people by stripping us of our lands. I mean, that's, it's one of the things that, that Donald Trump bragged about. And it's one of the things that, uh, that, that Roosevelt bragged about. But I got to tell you, Barack Obama did too. So we have to own, I mean, we really do have to own the history. And I don't mean, when I say we, I mean all of us. I mean, native or non-native. And burying that history doesn't make it really go away. Because when you try to bury it, with your mascots or with your, you know, or, or, or whatever, or films or books or whatever else. What it does is, is it, it, it's like twisting the knife in native people. Look, I know for many, many years, our people were beaten down pretty strong, pretty hard. And we didn't stand up 
to fight much of this. We didn't. In fact, some of our people were complicit. I mean, I look, I know football teams that, that brought in Native people to dance on their football fields. And look, there are still some Native people, and I, and I confront them all the time, that, that want to advocate and promote not just Native mascots, but, but the mockery that takes place in film and in, uh, in, in sports and that kind of stuff. So I know we are still confronting some of these issues. But anybody who truly has a conscience and can read <laughs> and is willing to understand what the real history is can know that, no, you didn't. You never did throughout American history view Native people as the noble savage, as the honorable beings. No, you never did. You do have an opportunity now to, but you have to know who we are today, who we are contemporarily. You can't rewrite history. That is what it is. You can own some of the atrocities that were committed against us. And yes, a contemporary society can own the sins of the past. And there's ways to do that. There's ways to reconcile those terrible histories. But one of those ways is not to deny it. And is not to bury it, is not to pretend it never existed. I believe we are honorable people, but we're flawed like anybody else. So the idea that somebody wants to use us, you know, some other group of people, white people in particular, want to use us as mascots, essentially do the same as, as Americans did in the early 20th century with blackface own another culture for your own entertainment and amusement it's wrong it's wrong and that's why we fight it but it isn't just about the mascot issue it's about trying to understand and, and i'm going to talk about other issues in in future shows about how history has been rewritten and that we we make excuses for behavior and, and we do it too. Native people do it too. That, you know, enlisting in the military, uh, in, in the military, in the armed forces is, a, is an example of that. So, but the only way to, to really delve into the origins of these, of this revisionist history is to understand what the real history is and how it comes to be. The reason I bring up Al Frank Baum all the time is because the way he writes in these editorials, at the, at the death of Sitting Bull and at the, at the Wounded Knee Massacre, it really does encapsulate what the American view was. That the only good Indians were dead Indians. I maintain that's not true. I want to thank you for listening. This is Let's Talk Native. I'm John Gain. Yahweh.